Welcome to the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast. This series discusses the big issues in financial services, providing market and legal insight into the latest trends and challenges in the sector. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series. Today we're talking about DLA Piper's predictions for class actions in 2023. I'm Jeremy Sher, International Head of Class Actions at DLA Piper based in London, and I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Clayton-Stead and Victor Croce, both specialists in this area. What is a class action? Well, you're likely to be familiar with the term from the United States, and certainly Hollywood makes movies about class actions. But in England, a class action does not have a specific technical meaning, and it's a pretty new idea that sort of crept into the financial services landscape. It's generally said to refer to any kind of group mass claim, representative proceeding or multi-party proceedings. Basically, it's a claim where a large number of businesses or individuals are bringing a claim about the same subject matter. It has become a significant feature of English financial services litigation, probably until the last 15 years or so. And what's really interesting is it's now spreading into Europe, particularly from the end of this year, where Europe is getting a Europe-wide class action system. And what's really changed, we think, over the last 10 years has been the liberalisation of litigation funding across Europe and the UK. This is providing the fuel for class actions activity, and litigation funders have steadily invested more money into class actions as their preferred mechanism for seeking compensation for losses and damages. A class action really is an economic process. It's a mechanism for setting a price for eliminating litigation or regulatory risk. And for funders, they are promoting this mechanism as it's viewed as a good way of securing a settlement, which is generally a funder's preferred outcome due to a class action's high level of financial risk if you're bringing a claim. If you take a look across the sector, some of the post-GFC banking litigation that we've seen, the Tesco litigation relating to financial irregularities, and some of the big financial claims that we're seeing in Europe. These are all funded class action claims that have subsequently been settled. So today, what we're going to be talking about is what do we anticipate for 2023? We think there are really three big areas that are going to make their mark on the sector. The first is really going to relate to ESG and climate, We think consumer protection issues. And finally, I think the fallout from the crypto collapse. Claire, what do you think about these three areas? You know, where should we start with this discussion? I think you're right, Jeremy, that those are the three key areas. I mean, there's class actions risk for financial services sector firms in many different areas. But if we're looking to pull out some themes and trends for 2023, I think those are probably the hot topics. And so let's turn to our first prediction, which is, I think, increased ESG-related class action risk. Now, that's obviously a hot topic across various sectors, and the financial services sector is really no exception. Jeremy, what do you think the risks are for FS sector firms in this space, and what trends do you expect to see during the course of this year? Well, I think that the first point to make is ESG issues for all businesses, not just financial services businesses, are really number one on the list. And we're not just talking about environmental matters, we're talking about social issues, such as those related to diversity and employment practices, and governance issues, how a company goes about making decisions. So it really is a very broad topic. 
I think what's become clear is financial services businesses have been preparing for this issue increasingly. And typically, maybe two or three years ago, the question was asked, well, why should financial services companies be worried about ESG issues? And and really, I think they've become a target because they provide much of the financing, much of the facilitation for certain types of businesses to operate. And that's why they've become a target. And one of the really interesting statistics, actually, Victor drew my attention to this earlier in the week, is 44% of all competition-related class actions against FTSE 100 companies are targeting financial services clients. And at least in the UK, where I'm based, that equates to roughly 25% of all total class action claims. And I think all of this increased risk for financial services businesses has to be looked against kind of the broader political regulatory framework. We've had COP26 in Glasgow and COP27 in Egypt. At COP26, the UK announced it would become the world's first net zero aligned financial centre, We, given the UK's importance globally as a financial centre is a pretty big commitment, actually, I think. And I think this is symptomatic of the increased focus for the sector globally. I think the other aspect which we're seeing is there is increasing levels of regulatory scrutiny. We've seen the FCA, the PRA, and some of the other regulatory and governmental agencies the Competition and Markets Authority as well, issuing increasing amounts of guidance for businesses about how they should be conducting their business in line with ESG obligations. Retail and institutional investors are are putting more pressure. And then, of course, we've got consumer activism and what I call impact NGOs, people like Client Earth that are litigating in order to change the behaviour in line with certain ESG objectives. So what does this all mean? Why does it give rise to litigation? Well, the reason is, I think, is when there are commitments and regulatory obligations that provides a baseline where potential claimants can point to non-compliance and assert that there is a claim, they've suffered some loss and damage. And that really, I think, is the starting point for class actions. And we see that in more mature markets like North America and Australia. Thanks, Jeremy. So you've talked about some of the foreign markets that we've seen ESG related litigation in there, just picking up on something that we're seeing coming out of the US. We've seen quite a lot of unethical business type claims in the US. So claims that um, financial services firms have tied themselves up with the likes of, you know, Russian oligarchs with Jeffrey Epstein and these kind of stock drop claims. Do you think that's a a risk that financial services sector firms are going to face in in this jurisdiction? It is. And, you know, we're aware of multiple claims that are being brought against certain of our clients already, which are focusing on stock drops. But I think, you know, sort of what I call these ethics-based claims probably have a wider meaning than they might have had 10 years ago. I think, what we're now seeing is some other types of behaviours are becoming an area of focus. For example, greenwashing. Greenwashing has become a particular focus for financial services and competition regulators. Greenwashing is a 1980s term, which sort of very loosely means making unsubstantiated or misleading claims about a market participant's environmental performance. And again, this is not just a financial services problem. It's also a problem for consumer goods companies, people in the food sector, the industrial sector. You know, one of the highest profile examples is is representations made in the automobile sector around emissions uh, compliance. But really, the financial services sector has now become a player in this because of its size and because of the depth of its pockets. So it's naturally seen as a, a target 
for claimants. And if we can just point to two developments this year, we saw in May 2022, a leading American bank paid $1.5 million to the SEC to settle charges of making misstatements about its ESG considerations when it was making investment decisions. Then we saw again in May 2022, a European bank was subject to raids by the German regulator. And again, that was about in the press, it's telling us that's about the management of ESG criteria. Now, in both of these cases, this is really interesting because I think for the first time, what we're seeing is regulatory focus on ESG compliance. And as I said previously, where that is going to lead is to more of these class actions claims. And one of the follow-ups, I think, is again, we look in September 2022, where we see another European bank settles a shareholder claim for a very significant amount of money for failure to implement AML controls. Now, AML controls would have just been seen as traditional financial services, regulatory compliance type of issues. Today, it's now presented much more as an ESG issue. When you put all of this together, there's a whole lot of different behaviours that are quite traditional forms of class action litigation are now sort of being rebundled as ESG litigation. And I think you've touched there on, obviously, ESG covers a, a whole spectrum of issues. You've touched there quite a lot on some of the issues that we'd say fall under the, the S, the kind of social impact litigation and regulation and claims activity. But I think for many people, the most significant and perhaps most challenging issues we're facing as a, a society arise out of the E, environmental and climate change issues. And that obviously forms part of our ESG prediction in terms of rising climate litigation against financial services firms. How do you see climate litigation fitting in with broader ESG claims activity? And, and why do you think, again, it's a particular risk for FS sector firms? Yeah, this is a huge issue. And it's been a huge issue, I think, for the last 18 months for financial services, businesses and insurers. We've just completed quite significant projects for a number of financial services and insurance businesses, which are essentially conducting risk assessments of their exposure to climate litigation. And when you look around the world, there are a number of examples of banks and insurers that are having to make some decisions about how they continue to operate their business and the extent to which they participate in supporting fossil fuels. And what's really interesting to me is I've got a number of fossil fuel clients who are saying to me one of their big risks are decisions by banks and insurers withdrawing from supporting the fossil fuels market. So on one hand, you've got the position for financial services and insurance businesses where they're concerned about complying with almost a regulatory obligation to advance a net zero agenda. But then on the other hand, you've got traditional participants in fossil fuels, energy intensive businesses, the chemicals industry, who are concerned about the impact of financing being withdrawn. So so it's a big issue. It's a really complex issue. And I think it raises quite a lot of challenges. And often they're put to general counsel, I think, which is, do we stop talking about ESG? Because it just puts us in the middle for this type of climate litigation. So it's a really tricky situation. There are a number of examples of banks in particular, both in Europe, I'm aware of one in Australia, and I'm aware of one in the United States that have had to withdraw from certain types of projects, particularly relating to coal. And getting that balancing act between different types of clients and bearing in mind the impact that those decisions have both on regulatory compliance, on customers, whether they're business or individuals, and on your own existing business, I think it's a really tricky, it's a tricky thing to get right. 
I think that's a really interesting point. I think a particular challenge for the financial services sector is that its activities or, or firms that operate within that sector, their activities aren't just confined to the provision of financial services. They are clearly involved in all manner of sectors through their customer base. And so it's not just financial services sector issues that affect those firms and those businesses. It's issues across a whole range of sectors. And, and I think you've just illustrated really well there, actually, how that can play out in, in practice. I think the good news about these complex issues, if you're a financial services business, is that you're not alone. And there are a lot of people thinking about this. And I think there are real opportunities for different businesses to learn from different types of industries. So, for example, if you take a more global perspective when you're looking at these types of issues, if you're in financial services, you look at how technology companies in particular manage their class action risk. They're right at the forefront of this. There's quite a lot of learning around the drafting of terms and conditions, which jurisdictions you contract in and which ones you don't. And I can't think all of this kind of thinking is the way businesses can go about mitigating the impact of this type of litigation, as well as, you know, I think acting authentically in line with values. Well, I think it's clear from that discussion that it's obviously a very challenging time for financial services firms. They're going to need to carry out and continue carrying out ongoing litigation risk analysis for ESG related issues in view of, you know, their business models, their customer bases, which are likely to be subject to probably quite significant change over the coming years. Yeah. And I think one of the things about particularly climate litigation is it has certain aspects which lends itself to class action activity. So first is very novel. I come back to the point I made a few minutes ago, which is these areas are difficult. They really are pushing, I think, at the boundary, the frontier of law. I think the second point is because you're pushing at the boundary necessarily, you bring claims in a whole lot of different ways. So tortious claims, sometimes contractual claims, statutory claims, looking for the regulatory basis. I think the third point is there's a public pressure strategy which really comes in and building in that strategic communications aspect to however you're dealing with these issues is really, really important. There'll be sometimes an intention to make the defendant financial services institution want to buckle under the weight of public pressure. But of course, as I've also mentioned, is you've got to be mindful of kind of your broader responsibilities to other types of customers and regulatory obligations. And I come back to this point I made again a few minutes ago is it's global. Climate claims originated, I think, in the US, which has traditionally been the most class action friendly forum for claims. And then they're being replicated. Australia and Canada, we're seeing very high levels of activity. But there are also things that are going on now in what I call emerging jurisdictions like Nigeria and Argentina and the Philippines. You then have these litigation funders who operate globally. They see something work in California and it will spread into England. And then they'll say, let's give it a go in Belgium and we'll do something in Australia as well. And that creates a really, I think, in the litigation landscape, quite a complex type of risk to be managing. Absolutely. I think it's probably time to move on to our second theme for 2023 now, which um, again is going to be a, a global issue, I suspect, and that is um, rising consumer class action litigation, arising principally out of the forthcoming recession, if we're not already actually in fact in a recession, that we're certainly sort of reading about, you know, across the globe, really. And we saw with the 
global financial crisis, didn't we, of 2008, 2009, that there followed then a significant wave of litigation, not immediately, but within the two, three, four years that followed. And, and really, some of that litigation's only just concluded. So I think uh, we're expecting to see a similar pattern this time with a severe economic downturn leading to claims management companies, claimant law firms seeking to bring litigation off the back of those economic circumstances. And I expect we'll see that within a, a similar time frame, sort of 12 to 24 months plus after this latest recession that we're facing. Yeah, and I think, Claire, one of the things that strikes me when we're talking about this area is a bit like ESG issues. It kind of picks up the zeitgeist of where we are economically and politically. There's a little bit of opportunism, I think. And, you know, when we're looking across Europe, what do you think are kind of the particular types of themes that funders and claimants might be picking up over the next year or so? Well, I think we're already seeing them picking up some of those themes. And in fact, some of them do flow from the last recession already. So we've got in the UK, where I'm also based, a sort of mortgage prisoner type claim, where there's been a claim issued that uh, a certain group of borrowers within a particular mortgage book were unable to access lower interest rates than comparable pools of borrowers with that same financial institution. So effectively, the claim is that they've been unfairly locked into excessively high interest rates. Now, my understanding is that the claim was initially brought by about 200 borrowers. It's now up to about 800. But uh, there's an estimate that the pool of potential claimants could be up to 27,000 former customers. And linked into that, we're seeing a huge number of complaints against mortgage lenders in front of the Financial Ombudsman Service. So not yet in sort of formal litigation, but clearly should those borrowers not obtain the redress that they would hope to via the Financial Ombudsman, they're going to look to pursue alternative avenues. And if, you know, the financial institutions and their advisors have noted this spike in complaints activity, then I think it's inevitable that litigation funders and claimant law firms are going to pick up on it and they will be there waiting to pick up any borrowers who haven't obtained the redress that they want. Those complaints are broadly being brought under the unfair terms regime at the moment, these sort of concepts of unfairness and unreasonableness. And I think we can expect to see that that will pick up again in the next sort of 12 to 24 months. And if you were counselling a financial services institution, what would you say to them is the most important thing that they should be focusing on to mitigate the risk of this sort of mass financial services litigation coming in? Well, I think there are two aspects, really. The first is that if they're looking to defend claims in respect of interest rates, you know, levels at which they set standard variable rates for borrowers, then the basis on which decisions to, for example, decrease standard variable rates as base rate dropped, you know, as it did post-2008 quite dramatically, that those decisions and the basis on which they made those decisions are going to be subject to very heavy scrutiny by borrowers and by their advisors. So as always is the case in litigation, we would urge financial services firms to ensure they've got robust processes, decision-making processes in place, 
and to ensure that those decisions are properly documented and the documentation is retained so that they can effectively defend those decisions later down the line when they're inevitably challenged. And then I think the second aspect, which applies sort of across the board of class actions, is identifying when you're likely to face this kind of mass claims activity. Now, we can sit here and say, you know, it's coming and be prepared for it. But there are certain things you can do to actually get on the front foot and and spot it. And one of the key triggers, I think, that a financial services firm might use to spot this kind of claim incoming is an uptick in customer complaints. They might find they're getting an increased number of data subject access requests, for instance. And if that data is monitored and you can see a trend in it, then you can spot that there might be something incoming and really get in front of it. And, you know, as I think you mentioned at the outset, Jeremy, these claims are quite often a a sort of economic model for funders. And so it's the strategic management of the claims that's really as important as being able to defend the substance of the claims themselves. And, And so early warning of any claim is key in then formulating your strategy to head those claims off and defend them. And I think moving then to the other, what I'd call uh, part of the zeitgeist in financial services litigation, crypto, and bringing Victor into the conversation, I saw The Economist magazine pose the question this week following the, the collapse of FTX. They've said, is this the end of crypto? They've said the collapse of FTX has dealt a catastrophic blow to crypto's reputation and aspirations. And I think one of the consequences that we've seen flowing from that quite significant market change has been a blowout of very significant class action activity, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world. Victor, what are we seeing in this space? Well, Jeremy, that's really great that you're mentioning that because this is actually starting to give us flashbacks from the global financial crisis with the difference that whereas we only had Lehman Brothers then and the crisis, here we're having a series of repeated scandals. There are three very important elements to think about when we're talking about crypto. Number one, we're dealing with unregulated investments. So that means any regulation will be done by the exchanges. They're the ones who do the policing. Number two, we're talking about significant investor exposure. So just by way of example, since 1st of January of this year, two trillion US dollars has been wiped out of the crypto market. And the third is we're dealing with very large numbers of retail investors. So you've got a collective, you've got significant exposure and loss, and you've got a lack of regulation. And the latest collapse, which is the collapse of FTX on the 11th of November, leaves approximately 100,000 creditors seeking to recoup anywhere between 10 to 50 billion. So that is the landscape we're currently looking at. And in terms of the claims that we're seeing, one of the most interesting ways in which these claims are manifesting themselves here in the UK, we've got a claim that dates from a fax from a couple of years ago, but which is symptomatic of the market. So BSV is an SPV that is pursuing a claim for anti-competitive behaviour on behalf of 240,000 UK-based investors against four exchanges. And the basis of the claim is that these four exchanges colluded so as to delist a crypto asset in favour of other crypto assets in which their companies, either platforms themselves, held significant reserves. 
And so that is going to be one of the most important claims to follow here in the UK because it's pursued in the CAT, so the Competition Appeals Tribunal, which means it's pursued on an opt-out basis. That's a really important point that you've just drawn out about class actions is that unlike the United States, class actions in Europe are typically litigated on an opt-in basis, which means investors have to choose to participate in the litigation. But what's different, I think, about these claims is they're opt out, where you choose not to participate. And I think that makes them quite a, a significant risk. And that's a specific point about competition claims in England, rather than other types of claims that we may have been speaking about earlier in this discussion. And what do you think is going to come out in the near future? Are there particular areas of focus that are in the crypto space where claims are going to be brought? That's another really interesting point, Jeremy. It's very important to bear in mind that in the UK, the majority of mass claim activity is now actually being pursued in the competition sphere, because as you've rightly pointed out, it's one of the very few conduits pursuant to which you can pursue claims on an opt-out basis, which means that in this case, you're pursuing a claim on behalf of 240,000 UK-based investors, as opposed to pursuing a claim on behalf of a potential pool of that many investors. In terms of the actual claims themselves, I would pay close attention to two particular areas. The first is the controversy around stablecoins. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with stablecoins, they are tokens that are issued by the exchange platforms, such as Binance, Kraken and FTX, to improve trading fluidity So you don't use fiat currencies like pounds or dollars. You would buy these tokens. And in exchange for doing so, these tokens are marketed as being pegged to a reserve asset. So I one token in exchange for $1 or the price of gold. And so that's why they're marketed as stable coins. Now, the controversy around these stable coins is that investors may seek to all sell and I route on the stablecoin at the same or particular time. And that usually happens immediately after another scandal is announced. And the problem that arises then is the platform which has issued these tokens, such as Tether, which was one particular example in the US, was not able to redeem all of the tokens at the time it would have wanted to. And so there was a lack of investor faith in the fact that these stable coins were actually worth, in that instance, $1. And so that's the controversy around the stable coins. Obviously, it's important to bear in mind that in the UK, these claims would be primarily brought under either misrepresentation, fraudulent misrepresentation, or the tool of deceit in circumstances where obviously they are not what they were marketed to be, because you won't be able to rely on FISMA, given that these are not regulated assets. The second type of claim that will follow, and this is actually the crux of the claim that's being brought by BSV against two of the four cryptocurrencies, are forced asset conversion claims. Now, what are we dealing with here? As you're all aware, cryptocurrencies are diverse, they're numerous, What happens, though, in an unregulated market is that it's the platforms themselves that have to police which cryptocurrencies are marketed on their platforms. And in the case, for example, of the BSV claim, a particular cryptocurrency, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, was delisted by these platforms 
and forcibly converted into other cryptocurrencies. So, for example, Kraken and Binance, in this case, both notified investors that they would be converting the Bitcoin Satoshi vision into Bitcoin and Ethereum at the average price. And so the areas around the claims would focus on both the fact that it was converted into an unwanted asset without investor consent, and the second, the rate of actual conversion. I mean, by way of example, the price of Bitcoin at the start of this year was $70,000 per Bitcoin. It's now close to $14,000. So when you are saying that you've converted an asset at the average price into Bitcoin at the average price, there's obviously an important element of volatility in there. And the second aspect would be the platforms will obviously charge a conversion fee. So they're essentially penalizing investors by delisting an asset arbitrarily and providing them with a crypto asset that they did not necessarily want in the first place. And Victor, what's interesting about this to me is a bit like the consumer protection section that we had at the beginning is, again, what's about it's about identifying where investors or consumers have suffered particular losses because of matters beyond their control. And I think where this goes is to quite significant litigation with a view to identifying who has the deepest pockets and then seeking to claw back some of those losses. Typically, you won't claw back all of one's losses because there isn't enough money quite often to do that, but it's about minimising the financial impact, I think, of investment decisions. Correct. And so in the crypto market, the players with the deepest pockets, at least for now, remain the cryptocurrency exchange platforms. And that is why these are primarily going to be targeted repeatedly by investors seeking to recoup their losses. I mean, obviously, we've got to bear in mind that the majority of investments made into the crypto sphere were not done so on the advice of particular financial advisors, because we're dealing primarily with retail investors. However, to the extent that there was advice to either purchase, for example, stable coins or a particular cryptocurrency, then those advisors should ensure that they have properly documented any advice that they provided to their clients, as well as obviously be following the situation in circumstances where the underlying asset they've recommended is now likely to have taken a significant financial hit. So just to pick up on that point, actually, about, you know, who's got the deepest pockets, I think that remains the most significant risk for the FS sector generally. Financial services firms are perceived as being, well, as having deep pockets and as being generally risk averse and therefore more willing to settle. And that plays to the model of the litigation funding that sits behind the vast majority of class actions that Jeremy mentioned right at the start of this session. Just to pick up on something else that Jeremy mentioned, the statistic of class actions against FS sector firms. I think I read a report last week into claimant perspectives and claimant willingness to join class actions. And that's definitely on the up in the UK as the general public become more used to seeing these kind of actions advertised. We see them on social media, we see them on television, in all sorts of channels. And there is a, an increased appetite from the public to join these kinds of actions, perceiving them as effectively risk-free money at the end of the day, a risk-free settlement. 
And that's particularly, again, the case for financial services firms, where they are unfortunately seen as quite an easy target for these kinds of activity. So I think that explains why we see class actions against financial services firms generally as being at uh, risk of increasing throughout this year. And then we've picked up on the three sort of trends that we expect to see this year. And I think the phrase that Jeremy used was the zeitgeist. So the concerns about climate and social impact, the prevailing economic circumstances likely to lead to increased litigation and also the cryptocurrency collapse that we have seen in recent weeks and months. So those are our predictions for 2023. Thanks both for your time on this session today, and we hope you found it interesting. Thank you. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. If you'd like to hear more of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series, subscribe now through your usual podcast app.